Welcome to the Air War in Europe. First, a bit of housekeeping. I have a little getaway planned for the Labor Day weekend, so I won't be posting an episode next week. I'll be back the following weekend, and I'll start to talk about the air war in North Africa and the Middle East. In the meantime, if you have a suggestion or question, or if you notice I've mispronounced a name or misstated a date, if you have a story from the air war you think needs to be told, send an email to airwareurope at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Twitter. That handle is at airwarinyurope. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can follow on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. If you like the program, please leave a review on iTunes. Reviews help boost the visibility to listeners looking for content. Thank you. On August 2, 1944, the 464th Bomb Group attacked port facilities at Genoa, Italy. Takeoff was at 055, operational altitude was 19,500 feet, and the load was 10 500-pound bombs. Bombs away at 1307 and landing back at Pantanella at 1445. From the combat diary of radio operator Sergeant Jerome Laurie. This was the first raid of this type that we ever pulled. It wasn't bad as we came in from the water, bombed the harbor, and made a sharp rally to the left and came right back over the water. Just as here we came and there we go. It wasn't just enough, however, as we collected flak holes. One through the number four engine cowling, which tore a big hole in the cowling, but didn't do any harm. One was in the fuselage near the tail, and the other two were in the tail. The flak was heavy, scant, and accurate. We really plastered that target, though. We really left plenty of fires and a hell of a lot of smoke. As usual, we had a good escort, P-38s. No enemy fighters were encountered. As the number of missions increase, I find I'm getting to respect that flak more and more. From Nose Gunner, Staff Sergeant George Kroll. Started off the new month with a nice little raid on Genoa, Italy. The raid was not too difficult. However, the Germans had my boxes range. They sent up moderate but accurate flak. Number four engines stopped a nice piece of flak in the cowling. Still, no fighters troubled us. Escort is doing a swell job. And from my grandfather's combat log. On August 2nd, we went on another mission. We were briefed rather late in the morning. We found our mission was rather short, just up to northern Italy. Our target was to be the dock installations in Genoa, Italy. We took off with a load of 10 500-pound bombs. We arrived at the target and bombs away at 11.07. The flak at the target was heavy, moderate, and fairly accurate. We got a large flak hole in the number 4 engine cowling, but no damage was done. I was taking pictures and we got a flak hole about 1.5 feet in back of the camera hatch. After an uneventful trip, we arrived home at 14.45 by way of Naples. Total time in the air, 6 hours, 50 minutes. With the departure in November of the two most experienced bomb groups, the 97th and the 301st, along with the 1st, 31st, and 82nd fighter groups for Tunisia, and the prioritization of the campaign in North Africa, 
The 8th Bomber Command found itself short of planes and short of supplies, just as they were beginning to get their feet under them. Most tellingly, they found themselves dwindling in strength as replacement crews and aircraft were shunted to Africa, and the Luftwaffe became ever more aggressive and effective. For six months, from November 1942 to May 1943, four groups of B-17s, the 91st, 303rd, 305th, and 306th, and two groups flying B-24s, the 44th and 93rd, shouldered the burden of the daylight bombing campaign in occupied Europe. The two Liberator groups were often tasked with ancillary missions. The 44th had squadrons detached for submarine patrol, and the 93rd went to Tunisia for several months, so the burden was carried by the fortresses. The routine the bomber crews followed on mission day is summed up by John Schuyler, the navigator on a 303rd Group B-17. We'd be awakened at 2.30 a.m. and we'd dress in the cold of the room and slog outside into the rain and muck, and we'd have our breakfast and then we'd go to the briefing room. Attention! We'd pop to and the colonel would stride down the aisle and mount the platform and announce the target. Saint-Nazaire, and we'd groan and laugh at the same time. From then on, it was business. We'd be told the time of takeoff, the time and place of rendezvous, the point of crossing the channel, the initial point, the target, the procedure, and the route back. Then we'd go to individual briefings, navigators' briefings, gunners' briefings, pilots' briefings, bombardiers' briefings. All night long, the bombs were being loaded and the ground crew was working on the planes. We could hear the engines being revved up. As long as the momentum of activity was going, everything would be okay. I felt the excitement, the blood coursing through my veins. I felt the intensity of it all. We would start the engines revving and I'd lay out my charts and have everything ready. Oxygen mask, parachute, check all the dials, computer, pencils, weems plotter. We could feel the plane being readied. We could feel the vibration of readiness of men moving back and forth at their dials, controls, and guns. Everything was okay. We were a team, and we knew each other and loved each other. The men were truly noble. The planes themselves were noble. The B-17s are scattered around the field, and it is seven in the morning, the first dim light of day, the first dim, gray, silver light, mist rising from the field. And then you hear engines starting here and there, and some close, a roar, and then ready on one, ready on two, contact, ready on three, ready on four, and the four engines of the B-17 slowly throbbing, vibrations increasing, a spitting and grumbling, a lust for the morning air, awaking from the dead, awaking from the night, awaking to life the life of a new day, of the throb, the heart throb of the plane, four engines beating, four propellers whirring, engines revving, echoing each other across the field. The olive drab B-17s would move slowly, brakes screeching, the ground crew watching, one of them helping to guide the plane around the circle to, onto the tarmac to the perimeter track. One after another, lumbering out onto the track, and then all of them, single file on each side of the field, two files moving, 
lumbering slowly toward the takeoff point at the end of the runway, all of them engines growling and propellers twirling, the nose of the B-17 in the air, the body sloping down to the rear tailwheel, already in an attitude of urgency, of wanting to rise into the gray morning sky. Because of the morning light, because of the vast, flat stretch of the field, the planes looked larger and more powerful than they actually were. Men, each an individual who lived and suffered, who had a woman or women, who sweated, crapped, lusted, who drank and got cold in the damp billets, who tried to light the stoves, who sat around and talked into the night, talking about the raids and lately about the chances for survival. Poor weather over England and the continent meant that men would be alerted to fly, then stood down as weather deteriorated. Sometimes they would go as far as sitting in the planes, engines running, lined up for takeoff, only to have the mission scrubbed. Other times they would launch, form up, head to the target, and be turned back by foul weather. To most, the uncertainty was the worst. One gunner noted that he had been briefed for 65 missions, yet only flew 15. Reprieve for a day was no relief from the mission requirement, and the strain on the men was enormous. The weather affected them in other ways. Moisture from the wet English winter got into aircraft components and guns. In the brutally cold air at 20,000 feet, sometimes 50, 60, or 70 below zero, the resulting ice would lock control surfaces, seize turret controls, freeze guns. Bill Fleming, the waste gunner on Schuyler's crew, remembered, Some of our equipment bothered us as much as the Germans. Our planes were open at the waste positions for the machine guns, so the temperatures at 30,000 to 32,000 feet were 40 to 70 degrees below zero. We had to dress very heavily. I wore long underwear and a uniform shirt and pants, an electric suit over that, plus a fur-lined flying suit on top of it. On my feet, I wore silk stockings, wool stockings, electric shoes, and fur-lined flying boots. My hands had silk gloves, wool gloves, electric gloves, and then the fur-lined flying mittens. You could barely move a finger, and you always left one free to work the trigger of the machine gun. We didn't dare unplug the electrical suits, which were connected to the battery systems. Without heat, you would freeze to death in a matter of minutes. It was funny to look at the man next to you and see his eyebrows white with frost. There were several severe cases of frostbite. You did not dare fly while you had a cold, because if you did, your oxygen mask, which was the old bag type, would freeze with ice and cut off your oxygen. We lost two gunners out of our squadron that way. One was a ball turret gunner, and the other a tail gunner. We had to clean our guns after every mission, using the solvent carbon tetrachloride. That kept the guns dry because any kind of moisture on them and they would freeze up. Later, of course, in the U.S. factories, carbon tetrachloride was banned as a deadly poison. I wonder how many of our guys got sick from it. I remember over Halle, Germany, during one mission, when it was so cold that our guns wouldn't fire. Fortunately for us, the Germans couldn't fire theirs either. At Allied Command, 
the debate about the effectiveness of daylight bombing was far from settled. The British were pressuring the Americans to join them on nighttime raids. Thus far, the B-17s and B-24s of the 8th Air Force were suffering a lower loss rate than their British counterparts, but this was largely due to German concentration on night defense, believing that heavy bombers were too vulnerable for daylight attacks. They had been somewhat caught off guard by the daytime appearance of American bombers over targets, but they did not waste time adapting. Loss rates in November were 3.7%, but in December, losses climbed to 8.8%. At this early phase of the war, the German submarine menace was still something to be reckoned with, and Allied command was very keen on hitting U-boat targets to help clear the threat to Allied shipping in the North Atlantic. The Germans built reinforced concrete shelters for their submarines in occupied ports in northern France, Holland, and northwest Germany. The overhead cover of these pens was up to 12 feet thick, and no bomb then in use by the Allies could penetrate it. Though the bomber crews didn't know this at the time, and they assumed that their efforts were having an effect on the U-boats. In fact, it was improved convoy procedures, aided by long-range air cover that put paid to the wolf packs. Dockside facilities, however, were vulnerable to the bombers, and the German response was to move these facilities under cover of the pens. But these facts were not known to Allied command, so the bombers went up to strike at U-boats. The first mission of 1943 was flown to Saint-Nazaire. The 85 bombers dispatched were led by Curtis LeMay's 305th Bomb Group, and the formation employed LeMay's tactical innovations, flying a long, straight bomb run, which was complicated by a furious headwind. The flat gunners at Saint-Nazaire had been gaining proficiency, adapting their tactics, and on this day, they sent up a predictive barrage for the first time. Rather than trying to fire into the formations as they moved, the flak batteries filled a space where the bombers were headed with rounds, and the bombers, battling the wind, spent nine long minutes lumbering through. Two bombers were shot down, and a third that didn't make it back to England was assumed to have been taken by flak. Most airmen would rather face fighters than flak. At least they could shoot back. Son of Fury, a 306th bomb group plane piloted by Lieutenant Charles Cranmer was one of four lost to fighters on the mission. Already damaged by flak, with two engines out and a large hole in the lower nose where flak had killed the bombardier and navigator, Son of Fury dropped out of formation and fell behind. The main formation dropped to 500 feet once over the water, but Cranmer kept his ship at 1,500 feet. In case she gave out altogether, the crew would have a chance to get out. Six FW-190s caught up with Cranmer and attacked. On Banshee, one of the last B-17s in the formation, tail gunner Sergeant P.D. Small watched four men bail out of Son of Fury, but the crippled 17 ditched in the sea, apparently still under control. Tech Sergeant Arizona Harris, a crewman on Son of Fury, stated his guns, firing at the strafing 190s as the B-17 sunk beneath the waves. He was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the nation's second-highest award for heroism. This mission to San Nazaire was the costliest so far. Seven bombers lost, with their 70 crew missing, and two killed and seven wounded on the returning planes. 
47 of which were battle-damaged. As repeated strikes were made on facilities shown by reconnaissance photos to still be in operation, targets acquired reputations. Saint-Nazaire, northern France, became known as Flak City. More missions and more losses followed, though not all from enemy action. When a tail gunner did not respond on the intercom, another crewman went back to check on him. The gunner was dead. The oxygen system had malfunctioned and he asphyxiated. On January 27th, the 8th made its first strike on German soil. The target was the shipyards at Vegasak outside Bremen. John Reagan of the 306 Bomb Group recalled, This was somewhat routine. We had already bombed German targets in occupied Europe. Routine, that is, if one could adjust to the tremendous pressures of combat and the all-too-often loss of close friends. Frankly, I knew of no one who could truthfully say that any combat mission was just routine. I wish it were possible to accurately describe the tension, the emotion that was evident in our 35-man crew huts on those mornings when we were awakened for combat missions. One would have to be present to feel the electricity that filled the air. Some men shouted to relieve tension. Others laughed out loud when nothing was really funny, and others were silent with their thoughts, probably fixed on coming events or on loved ones. I even knew some who would silently slip outside in the darkness to become ill. They didn't want their buddies to see them. Everyone wanted to appear tough and strong. It's normal. We were all so young, but we had learned that war is hell and that the only romance or glamour associated with it is in fiction. All was usual until the 5 a.m. briefing. This took place in our combat operations hut, which had become very familiar to all of us. We sat together as combat crews and exchanged small talk while we waited anxious to find out what our target for the day was to be. A large map of England and Europe that took up most of the front of the briefing room was covered, as usual, by a blue cloth so the crews would only find out what the mission of the day would be after the briefing had started. At 5 a.m., our commanding officer and the operations briefing officer entered the hut. We came to attention and then sat down. After a few short opening comments, our commander paused, then said dramatically, Gentlemen, this is it, and with that drew back the blue cloth covering the map so that we could see it and the telltale ribbon that would show our course to fly and the target for the day. Initially there was stunned silence, and then the room erupted with shouts of exultation and wonderment as the significance of the mission sank in. Yes, we actually were going to hit the enemy near his heart. The excitement was intense. For a moment, even the fear of combat was forgotten as exultation reigned. The historic meaning of this event sank in even further when we were told that our group had been selected to lead the mission. I was doubly thrilled as my squadron was to lead the total American bombing effort. Flying far out over the North Sea, hoping to evade German detection, the bombers turned in toward the German coast and climbed to bombing altitude. The weather began to deteriorate, and the pilots realized that the clouds would make bombing Vegasac impossible, so the force diverted to the secondary target, the port of Wilhelmshaven. 
58 B-17s and a small force of B-24s were able to bomb through gaps in the thin clouds. German opposition was surprisingly ineffective. The flak was light and inaccurate. The German fighters that came up did not attack with the skill and determination of the Luftwaffe units in France that the bomber crews were used to. Only one B-17 from LeMay's 305th Group and two 44th Group B-24s were lost over the target. Howard Adams was the pilot of one of the B-24s sent on the raid. We took off around 9.30 in the morning, and after rendezvousing over the field, started a long climb up to 25,000 feet, heading out for the North Sea. Everything went quite well until we reached an altitude of around 17,000 feet, where my number three engine began to falter due to a clogged line to the supercharger I later found out. I kept on for a way, hoping it would settle down, but it only grew worse, and so finally I peeled out of the formation and headed for home. We were around 80 miles out to sea, and so scooted for home as fast as we could. I turned once and could see the rest of the 44th disappearing in the direction of Germany. Soon we were back over our field, quite disappointed for not being able to go. After dinner, I went down to watch the others come in. I noticed that two of our ships were missing. Later, I found out that they were my friend and West Point classmate, Lieutenant Sullivan, and a Lieutenant Cargyle. I learned that as they neared the German border, around 30 enemy fighters came up to meet them, mostly FW-190s and ME-109s. For around half an hour, they were under attack, and not being able to find their target, they dropped their bombs on a coastal town. During one of the numerous frontal attacks, the Huns scored a hit on Sully's number three engine, setting it on fire, which soon grew in fury as he dropped out of formation. Soon the fire had burnt a large section of the wing away, and in no time the right wing folded back along the fuselage, and Sully plummeted down for his last landing. The crews in the other planes watched helplessly as his plane disintegrated in the air and fell into the sea like a burning rag. Two men were seen to jump out and float down towards the sea in their parachutes. A third man jumped, but his chute trailed out behind him, never seeming to open fully. Their fate is still unknown. A little later, another FW-190 came in on a head-on attack, aiming at Cargyle's plane. Either through accident or design, as he went to turn away, his wing clipped the wing and then the right tail fin of Cargyle's B-24, knocking them both off. The FW-190 seemed to fold up and then go into its last dive. With part of his wing gone, the big B-24 dropped away like a fluttering leaf, finally going into a tight spin, its fate sealed. None of the crew were seen to jump. On February 2nd, the target was the rail marshalling yards at Hamm in the Ruhr Valley, the industrial heartland of Germany. The bombers were forced to abort the mission because of weather. Two days later, 86 bombers set out again, but were again hindered by weather. 39 of the fortresses unloaded over Emden, and the others went after a German convoy just off the coast. The formations came under heavy attack by German fighters. For the first time, the Germans employed air-to-air bombing. Flying a few thousand feet above the formations, German planes dropped fragmentation bombs with time fuses. The technique was ineffective, but it demonstrated clearly that the Luftwaffe was taking daylight bombing seriously.
Ham was finally struck on March 4th, when the commander of a small force of 15 B-17s from the 91st Bomb Group, flying above the weather and not realizing that the main force had either aborted or diverted to other targets, opted to press on. Four of the 15 were lost, as such a small formation could not hope to defend itself adequately, but they dropped their bombs directly on the rail yards. On March 18th, the 8th Air Force went back to Vegazak. The 303rd Bomb Group led the force, and they encountered heavy and accurate flak. Duchess was the lead ship of the group, making Bombardier Jack Mathis the lead bombardier. The other bombardiers in his squadron would release their bombs when they saw Duchess's fall. Less than a minute from the target, a flak shell exploded near the right side of the nose, blasting Mathis the nine feet back to the rear of the nose compartment. With his right arm nearly severed above the elbow and deep wounds in his abdomen, Mathis dragged himself back to his bomb site and released the bombs on time. The navigator, who had also been knocked over by the blast and not realizing Mathis had been mortally wounded, saw him collapse over his bomb site while reaching for the switch to close the bomb bay doors. The group's bombing was highly accurate, and only one plane was lost on the mission. Mathis was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions, the first awarded in the 8th Air Force. On April 5th, Tech Sergeant Michael Roscovich became the first man in the 8th to finish his 25 missions. Known to his fellow airmen as the Mad Russian, instead of going home, Roscovich took a commission and became the gunnery officer for another group. He completed 33 missions in total before being sent back to the States. He was killed when the plane taking him home crashed in Scotland. On the first day of May, Staff Sergeant Maynard Snuffy Smith flew his first mission as a replacement ball turret gunner on a 306 Group Fortress. When navigation errors put the formation over flak batteries on the Brest Peninsula, Smith's aircraft received several hits, and fires started in the radio room and the tailwheel housing. After his turret rotator mechanism stopped functioning, Smith climbed out of his turret to find the waste gunners and radio operator bailing out. The fire in the radio room isolated the after compartment from the cockpit, so there was no way to know if the men there were bailing out or not. These men were all veteran aircrew, and they could be expected to know the score, but Smith stayed with the plane. He wrapped a sweater around his face and fought the fire with a handheld extinguisher. His plane stayed in formation, and Smith guessed that the pilots were still aboard. Leaving the radio room to put out a small fire in the rear, he came on the tail gunner, severely wounded. Removing him from his station, Smith administered first aid, then went back to fight the fire in the radio room. Alternately checking on the wounded gunner and firing at the Germans, Smith continued to battle the blaze. The damaged oxygen system fanned the flames to intense heat, setting off ammunition stored nearby. Smith threw ammo boxes out the hole burned in the side of the B-17 and for 90 minutes, using everything he could find, fought the fire. In the end, urinating on the smoking ruin of the radio room. The plane landed safely back in England, and Smith became the second 8th Air Force man awarded the Medal of Honor. 
By May, the four B-17 groups, the 91st, the 303rd, 305th, and 306th, had lost 99 planes in combat. Though they had been credited with nearly 450 enemy fighters knocked down, the total was actually not more than 50. From November to February, the four groups had received only 20 replacement crews, only one-third of the loss rate. The heaviest hit was the 306th, with 45 B-17s lost in action. Their 367th squadron had the heaviest losses, and yet their 369th had not lost a crew since January. In the 91st group, the 401st squadron had lost 115 men killed or missing, though they started their tour with only 90. Billy Southworth was a pilot in the 303rd. We arrived as a complete group on October 31st, and three short or long months, the group has completed some 11 raids and lost over 50% of the organization. We average about 15 planes per raid, which means that we have lost about 120% of our combat equipment and are operating by using reserve. We still lack nose guns. 80 to 90% of our losses have been from nose attacks on our squadron. Nine pilots were lost. The odds were heavily stacked against anyone completing their 25 missions, and yet, eventually, some 25% did. As mentioned before, the losses hit replacements most heavily. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. They had no combat instincts, and in this early phase, there were no veterans stateside to teach them. So they died. The strain, the hopelessness, and the toll of it all were captured by Bill Fleming. All of our nerves were affected. We are now down to only three of the original nine crews in our squadron. No replacements. It wasn't anything to see some guy break down and cry. I felt like doing it myself many, many times. Things were not looking good. I was having blackout spells, running a high temperature. They put me in the hospital. They couldn't figure out what it was. After six weeks, a young doctor discovered I had an infection in my inner ear that upset my sense of balance. They treated me and released me. By that time, I had completed 14 missions. We had lost four of our nine crews and were down to 50 of the original crewmen. There were no replacements available at the time. I'll leave you with this from John Schuyler. We were called upon for a raid and we could only get a few ships out of the group in the air because of the lost ships, because of badly shot up ships, because of shortage of personnel, either shot down or sick. Two minutes before San Nazaire, the squadron is seven ships. At San Nazaire, it is two. I see the clouds, clouds building up so that we couldn't see the ground. We had no sign of movement. The B-17s standing still and the Falkwolfs and Messerschmitts coming in to meet them, coming in to knock us out of the sky. For a moment, for a long moment, I was not navigating. I was watching the planes falling, the head-on crash of a fighter into a B-17, the exploding, burning, war-torn, falling pieces, all too often no shoots in sight, the lonely men held to their seats, to the walls, 
to the roof of the plane as it twisted and fell, sometimes with machine guns blazing and a spume of smoke for a long moment. It seemed endless. It seemed as though we would never get home. I was looking out of the window at the endless blue sky and white cloud beneath us. We waited for the Fogwolfs and Messerschmitts, and we watched the fortresses fall. I wanted to hold them. I wanted to go down with them. I wanted to go home. I prayed. I prayed, please, God, I'm bored. Please don't make this go on and on and on. It's boring. I can't stand this boring repetition. Please, God, get us out of here and get this over with. There's a tail gun again.